chapter 1, verses 12, through chapter 2, verse 3. Are you not from of old, O Lord my God, my Holy One? You shall not die, O Lord, you have marked them for judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for punishment. Your eyes are too pure to behold evil, and you cannot look on wrongdoing. Why do you look on the treacherous and are silent when the wicked swallow those more righteous than they? You have made people like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. The enemy brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his seine. So he rejoices and exults. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his seine, for by them his portion is lavish and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. Then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning's gospel reading comes from Luke chapter three. Hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. For 15 years, Emperor Tiberius had ruled that part of the world. During this time, John, the son of Zechariah, was living in the desert and received a message from God. So John went along the Jordan Valley and told the people God's message. He told them, turn back to God and be baptized. Then your sins will be forgiven. This is like the words written in the book of Isaiah the prophet. In the desert, someone is shouting, get the road ready for the Lord. Make a straight path for him. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made flat. Crooked roads will be made straight and rough roads will be made smooth. Then everyone will see how God will save his people. This is the gospel of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you uh, for the gift of your word and for your spirit. We thank you for the gift of your people. And, um, uh, and we thank you that we can hear the voice of the Lord read uh, through the voices of the saints, uh, old and young among us. Uh, and we are, we are grateful to be part of one community, one body of many members. So would you speak to us now as we sit with your scriptures? Uh, would you enlighten our minds and hearts? Would you enliven us by your spirit? Uh, and as we open your scriptures and consider 
your word. Would you speak to us, we pray, uh, through Christ our Lord. Amen. So how are you feeling about the holiday season? I know we all have kind of mixed experiences probably. For some, you know, it's the, it's the most wonderful time of the year, as they say. And for some, it's, this is, uh, you know, you, you can't help but, uh, but live into the season in such a way where you've got, your brain is chock full of neural pathways that were forged as a kid when you were looking through the wish book or you were shopping and that, that dopamine hit comes, man, when you're shopping for stuff or you hear that playlist or the, you got the eggnog and the tacky sweaters going and you, you live for this time of year. Um, some of you just want to survive this time of year and are sort of of the, of the camp of please just wake me up when it's over, right? Because the holidays can be really hard. They can be times of the year when uh, relationships that are strained are, are brought more into the forefront of our experience and we're brought more into some of the more delicate and difficult relational contexts in our lives. It can be a time of year when we're reminded of loss, where we feel loss more acutely maybe a lost loved one, or a family situation that just isn't what it ought to be, or loneliness that feels heavier this time of year. There's all kinds of ways that we experience the holidays, and for some of us, we want to, as Cindy said last week in, in her sermon, we, we're, we're, some of us like to escape into the season, right? We like to, to hallmark and eggnog this thing up and, uh, and put a little tinsel on it. Others want to escape out of this time of year and just survive it. But Advent, unlike the holiday season, is not a time to escape, but a time to engage, as Cindy reminded us last week. Advent is a season of watching and waiting. What do you think of when you think of waiting? Like, I think of a waiting room, right? Like, you're there for an appointment, and you're sitting in the waiting room. You're reading a lame magazine that you would never have read, except that it's the one that's there on the coffee table. Uh, you're, you're passively waiting for whatever it is that's the actual thing that you're there to do, right? The waiting is pointless, in a sense. And so waiting is a, is a, it's a bore, it's drudgery. Or I think of maybe standing in line, right? Standing in a long line where you're just waiting. We went to the Christmas village a, a couple weeks ago with my family and we went to the little like cafeteria there, stood in line for like 40 minutes to get the, you know, fries and burgers. Uh, that should have taken no time at all. It's drudgery, waiting is drudgery. But those are passive notions of waiting, aren't they? We also have active kinds of waiting. Maybe we don't think of these quite as readily when we think of waiting, maybe you do, I don't know, but I think of like waiting for graduation, right? Or waiting for a performance or a competition or a presentation, and that kind of waiting is very different, isn't it? Because that kind of waiting gives you something to do in the meantime. If you're waiting for a big presentation or a big performance, you prepare. The time between now and then is a time of preparation, right? If you're waiting for a sporting event, my daughter is running in her first 5K this morning, uh, and she's been awaiting that event by practicing, by training, by getting ready. That's a kind of active waiting. That's awaiting a moment that will be the culmination of all the things that we've been working on. Advent draws us into a kind of waiting that is an active waiting, an active posture of awaiting the coming of Christ, the one who will bring the fullness of all that God has been working on, 
of all that God has promised, this great project of renewal. It's a great project that God involves us in as well. And Advent harnesses this energy of our eager anticipation of Christmas, which we know is coming soon. And it helps us redirect that anticipation, not only toward the near horizon of Christmas, but to the great horizon of Christ will come again. Christ will come again to make all things new and to wipe away every tear from every eye and to set the world aright so that justice and peace prevail and the world will live in love toward God and neighbor and all creation. The book of Habakkuk that we're reading this Advent is an Advent book because it is a book for the in-between times, a book for the waiting times. Habakkuk comes from a a context of being in between the conquests of two different empires when the Assyrians had already come through and done their worst and the Babylonians are coming soon. And last week as we began to read Habakkuk and consider it as an Advent book, we heard this first complaint of the prophet who cried out to God, how long, how long will my prayers go unanswered? How long will injustice prevail? How long will your, will your people live away from you? And this morning, we will hear the prophet's, or we just heard, the prophet's second complaint. And his second complaint is about God's response to his first complaint. Because when the prophet complained the first time, it was this, how long, O Lord, will you leave my prayers unanswered? How long will you ignore me? How long will you let things be wrong? with your people and in your world. And God's response was one of, I will raise up the Chaldeans, who are like the Babylonians, basically. I will raise up these people, and they're going to do awful things. And the prophet now, in this section, responds with another complaint. And essentially, the CliffsNotes version of this complaint is, wait a minute. That can't be right. I know you, God, and that's not what you're like. How could you possibly use these evil Babylonians to accomplish your good works? And that's the gist of the complaint that we get here if you look at verses 12 through 17 of chapter 1 that are printed there for you in your bulletin. Are you not from of old, O Lord my God, my Holy One, right? Your eyes are too pure to behold evil. You can't look on wrongdoing. Why would you use the wicked to do something to correct those more righteous than they? Essentially, why would you use these evil Babylonians to do something about the problem with your people? And he uses this illustration of fishing gear. So in verses 15 to 17, we got three different kinds of fishing gear that come into view. In verse 15, we see fish hooks. Those are mentioned once. A fish hook catches one fish at a time. In verses 15 and 16, we see fish nets. Those are mentioned twice. Those are round nets that are thrown by like one or two people, and they're more efficient than fish hooks. And then in verse 15 to 17, mentioned three times, is the scene or the dragnet. And these are huge nets. 
They're almost like a wall of net. They could, they could be up to 1,000 feet long and 25 feet high, and it would require like 15 or 16 workers to use it. And the goal of the scene is to completely empty that section of water of its fish. This is actually really advanced fishing technology for the time. And the prophet, Habakkuk, is looking at the Babylonians as those whose fishing technology is state of the art. They can do things that those living in Judah cannot do in terms of their fishing. And their technological advancement leads to this massive yield. But here's the thing. The fishing gear, which is real, that's a real technology that the Babylonians had, they were advanced. In this passage, it's a, it's a metaphor because he's not just talking about fishing, he's talking about war. And the fishing gear is an, is an illustration of what the Babylonians do as warriors. The fishing is warfare, the fishermen are the Babylonians, the fish are nations and peoples, and the hooks, the fishnets, and the dragnets, those are instruments of war. And he's, de he's depicting Babylon as this nation with state-of-the-art military technology that crushes enemy states. And what he's saying is, God, you're gonna, how could you possibly, how could you possibly look on a group like that and say, I'm going to raise them up to mo and mobilize them to actually move this story forward? And Habakkuk critiques Babylon as those who worship their technology. They worship their military mites. They make sacrifices to their fishnets and dragnets. How can God's goodness and faithfulness possibly coexist with blatant, unrestrained evil? That's a good question. And Habakkuk does the courageous, non-cynical thing with his question and his doubts he actually brings them to God. He actually brings them to God. And then he prepares himself for God's response. And that's where we see Habakkuk at the watch post. So far, God's responses to the prophet have only made him more confused. And so he's, he's raised his complaint, he's lifted his voice, and now he's sort of stealing himself for what God may say next. And I think it's important for us to recognize that what we see in Habakkuk is not he's not being insolent or rude. I think we're supposed to see Habakkuk as a normal person doing what normal humans do because we don't understand everything. And it's really hard to make sense of suffering, of evil, of injustice. It's hard to make sense of our circumstances and to understand uh, how every little bit coheres with the goodness of God and the power of God, right? We don't understand it. There is a great mystery in a lot of this. And Habakkuk is wrestling with that. He's wrestling with the conundrum of God's goodness and the existence of evil, and God's willingness to allow it to persist. But instead of doing the cynical mic drop rhetorical question thing that assumes no answer is possible, Habakkuk goes to the watch post and waits for God to respond. He prays. And that may be the most basic lesson of this passage. What do we do when we're confused? What do we do when we are overwhelmed? 
What do we do when we're struggling with God? Pray. Open yourself to God. Turn toward God and await a response. What do you do when you're confused? What do you do when you're frustrated? What do you do when you're outraged? What do you do when you're overcome with grief? There was a professor of mine in seminary who said, it's one thing to cry out to God, it's another thing to just cry into your pillow. And the invitation of faith is to actually bring our cries to God and not just to cry into our pillow. I don't know about you, but when I'm confused or frustrated or outraged or grieving, I can be cynical. I can ask the rhetorical questions, you know, the mic drop questions uh, that don't actually expect an answer, that can be insincere. I can play the blame game. I'm sure you can play the blame game. I can rage, you can rage. We do all kinds of things. We escape, we attack. But what Habakkuk does is he brings all of that energy and confusion and unsettledness and the experience of his discontent and he brings it to God rather than letting it be the reason that he turns away from God. And then he awaits God's response. And what God does is he responds to the prophet's complaint, not with an, ex an explanation of how all this stuff works, but with a glimpse of how the story ends and an invitation to await that future in active hope. And God says, write the vision. Write the vision. And then the section that we didn't read that comes after this is the vision that he gives Habakkuk to write. And it's a vision that begins with looking at the proud, the empire, the coming one of the military might, Look at the proud, their spirits are not right within them or their souls are puffed up, but the righteous live by their faith, their faithfulness. And so it's this vision and that's followed by a series of woes. And essentially the picture that unfolds is one in which those who do evil and those who perpetuate injustice, their efforts are thwarted in the end. That the evil doesn't last forever. That the story that's unfolding is a very complicated one that involves all kinds of different movements. It involves all kinds of different actors and players. But in the end, the story that is unfolding is one that leads toward God's great promise, that leads toward the great horizon of the kingdom that will come. And the vision that he gets, that's, that includes these woes against evildoers, is basically a vision that injustice will not prevail in the end because the Lord is faithful. And the Lord will make good on his promise to set the world to rights. When we read that story all the way toward Jesus, and we begin to see how God completes the story in him, a lot of things come into much clearer focus because we have all kinds of ways of making sense of how this or that could or couldn't cohere with a God who is all good and all powerful. And we sit in the complexity and often we find it too confusing. But what we get in Jesus and in his cross is this clear revelation of a God who is not far off. He's not aloof. He's not uncaring. He's certainly not a bully, but a God who's actually willing to put himself beneath the pain and the hurt and the evil and the injustice. 
A God who's willing to say, I care so much about you. I care so much about my world. I care so much about my people that I'm willing to use even my own suffering and death to bring you home and to bring to completion the story that I've been telling, the project that I've been working on. The prophet writes the vision in a way that runners may read it. And some commentators think that this is actually a way to describe a vision that implies the faithful response, a vision that you can run toward rather than run away from. And it evokes this image of watching and waiting like a runner, the active watching and waiting, not waiting room waiting, but practice waiting. Preparation, waiting. Waiting for grace, waiting for the Lord. The vision God tells Habakkuk to write that we see coming into clearer focus in Jesus is this one in which God will bring his kingdom to bear upon the earth as it is in heaven. It's one that at the very center of that vision is his son and included in the company of those who are preparing the world and preparing humanity for the coming of the Lord are all of those of the family of God whom he's invited into this divine conspiracy, as Dallas Willard calls it, the divine conspiracy of cultivating new creation now. We talk about living in Advent all the time. The reflection quote in your bulletin from Fleming Rutledge talks about this, of Advent is in a sense all the time because we live between the first coming of Christ and his return. We live between the already and the not yet. We live with the real hope that Christ has come and we live with the real expectation that what is not yet fulfilled will one day be fulfilled. And so this Advent life of watching and waiting is an Advent life of practicing and preparing for the Lord, of practicing and preparing our own hearts for him, of practicing and preparing our lives to fit the world that he's making of practicing and preparing to use our own agency in all of our spheres to be agents of God's justice and peace and wholeness and reconciliation and love in the world, to use the power that we have to cultivate God's kingdom on earth as we await the fullness of that kingdom that will come when Christ returns. Tish Warren uh, writes this in her book, um, Prayers in the Night, I believe is the title of it. She says, as Christians, we take watching as a practice, a task even. We stay on the lookout for grace. We proclaim that even in the deepest darkness, there is one we can trust who will not leave us. We believe that even if the worst comes to pass, there is a solidarity to beauty, to God himself that will remain. Our posture of waiting does not deny the horrors of the night, but it bets on the morning to come. And she says, fear also, fear also keeps us on the lookout, but in a different way. Instead of dawn, she writes, we imagine only desolation. We assume there will not be grace enough for what lies ahead. Fear tells us there is no one with us who can be trusted on this dark road. The Advent invitation for you and me this invitation to watch and wait with the Lord for the Lord is an invitation to take up that waiting, that lookout practice, 
that's not just this fearful lookout practice where we forecast every threat and anticipate and brace ourselves for the worst and grasp for every control that we may grasp to try to fortify ourselves against whatever may come. But it's an actual practicing of watching and waiting for the Lord himself, of fixing our hope on his kingdom come and of actually investing our energy, our mindset, our attention, our attitude on the means by which he brings his kingdom, which is in fellowship with Jesus, loving God, loving neighbor, watching for grace, waiting upon the Lord. May God give us grace this Advent to watch and wait with him. Would you pray? Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of your son and the season of Advent. By your Holy Spirit, would you remake us more and more into the likeness of Christ, that we would be those who watch and wait for you. And would you press deep into our hearts and fresh into our minds the beautiful knowledge that in Christ you actually are with us in the waiting, that you watch and wait with us, and that our waiting is not in vain. Bring your kingdom in fullness, we pray, and involve us in making all things new. We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen.